Hello, check, there we go. Good morning, Redeemer. How's everyone doing? I don't know if you remember the fire alarm went off. That was cool. <laughs> um, let me pray one more time just to get my head out of the, uh, the fire alarm world because, I don't know. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for, um, for your word, and I pray this morning as we look into your holy scriptures, Father, that you would draw us near to yourself, Father. Convict us of sin. Um, just be with us, Lord God. Uh, we love you so much. We thank you for the cross and for the resurrection and what it means to us, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning. My name is Jonathan. I serve alongside the pastoral team here at Redeemer. And this morning, we are going to be looking once again at the Sermon on the Mount. We are moving forward into the next section, starting in verses 21 through 48. So we're going to be covering a lot of ground today, so bear with me. Um, but we're going to move through it fairly quickly, because I believe what Jesus is doing in this section on the Sermon on the Mount is that he's actually drawing our attention to verse 48 where he says that we ought to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. That's cool, right? That doesn't seem too difficult. We can all attain that. Perfection's not a problem. So let's see what we are looking at here. So you have a simple outline in your bulletin, and we are going to be looking at that first section where it says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus, his quoting of the Old Testament throughout this section it demonstrates, one, his reliance upon the Hebrew scriptures. But two, what it does, because he doesn't just say, you've heard it said. He also says, but I say to you. And when he says that little phrase, but I say to you, what he's showing is his authority as both teacher and lawgiver. As teacher and lawgiver. Now remember, if we go back into the Old Testament, who was the one who gave the law, right? There was someone who delivered the law. But there was one who gave the law, and that was Yahweh himself. That was God, as Moses went up to the mountain to receive what was given from the Lord. But what Jesus is doing here, not only is he teaching, but he's actually delivering the law in a way that is a little bit different from Moses. We talked about how Jesus is this new Moses, but we also talked about how he is the better Moses. Because he's not just a conveyor of information, but rather he is an initiator of law. It's really important that we catch that. There's a slight difference as we're going through this text. That he's not just giving us something that was delivered to him, but he is the one who is formulating it. He is Yahweh God. Often people will say about Jesus that he never claims to be God. He never claims to be the Messiah. But right here... In our text, we see him doing just that by being the one who gives the law. So the questions we need to ask is this whole idea of abolish and fulfill, right? Because last week we talked about that Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he came to fulfill them. So it seems as though he might be contradicting the law. Is he contradicting? That can't be the case because last week in verse 17 it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. He's doing something. He's pointing to the traditional mishandlings of the law that were present in his context. And he's providing divine exegesis of the law. That's a big word, exegesis. That just means, that just means interpreting the scripture. 
That just means interpreting the scripture. And what Jesus is doing, he's showing how do we interpret the law properly. Because what had happened is, is that the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the scribes of the day were interpreting it improperly. They were adding to the law. They were doing the very thing that Jesus preached, again, preached against in verse 19 where it says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, whoever puts these to the side and teaches others to put them to the side, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So, right, there's two things happening. He's, he's presenting himself as teacher and he's presenting himself as Yahweh God. And he's showing a better way of interpreting the law. But what he's also doing as we are traveling through this text to get to verse 48 ultimately, which is the culmination of this whole entire passage, is he's showing us what it means to be truly human. What does it look like to be truly human? In Psalm 8, we get a picture of what it means to be truly human. And we were in the Psalms all summer, but we didn't cover this particular Psalm. And it's one of my favorites, but... We just didn't get there. So in Psalm 8, it reads like this. And you can turn there if you'd like, but you don't have to. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. And then when he says this, this is where it gets really good. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, or a little lower than the angels, or even better, a little lower than the gods, and crowned him with glory and honor. Do you catch that? And crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So what it means to be human, what the initial plan was at the beginning when, when God spoke creation into existence back in Genesis, because what Psalm 8 is doing, it's a, it's a poetic rendering of the creation account of humanity. But what it means to be human, it means to be one who is crowned with glory and honor. It means to be one who has dominion. It means to be one who is ruler over this world. That's what it means to be human. And yet as we look around this world, we don't see much of that kind of humanity being displayed. Because the reality is what the fall did back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happened was, is that humanity was cursed, but, but what happened to us is that we actually became somewhat subhuman as a result. We became subhuman as a result. And the whole program of the scriptures shows how Jesus came to restore the image of God. To restore the image of God. And as we look at our text this morning, he's showing us how the law... And Moses' intention, the heart of Moses, was always to draw us to a place where we might become flourishing human beings. Where we might become what we were always intended to be. So let's jump in and see what the Lord has for us. Verses 21 and following. 21 through 26. He starts out with this, this idea of anger. He says, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said to those of old... 
you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to term quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So here we are, fulfillment defined. See, Jesus is providing illustrations so that his listeners can understand and apply the law and the prophets and develop a kingdom-oriented wisdom that leads to a higher and deeper righteous piety, righteousness and piety, than that of the scribes. Remember, we're supposed to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. We talked about that last week. And now Jesus is showing us how we might go about that. So he talks about anger first. And he's quoting Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And basically what we're getting at and what we're going to see as we're getting at through all of these texts is that Jesus is concerned with the posture of the heart that leads to murder. Right? Because no one just wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to kill you. Something starts that process. It starts somewhere, and it typically starts in the heart of humanity. With a bitter thought, an angry thought, a frustration that just kind of snowballs and snowballs and snowballs. I mean, if we've watched, you know, 60 Minutes and we've seen these stories how, like, a spouse murders their husband or their wife, you kind of wonder, like, how did that happen? Right? What's the backstory there? And, and oftentimes in shows like 60 Minutes and what have you, they, they kind of give you the backstory. They show like, oh, well, so-and-so wasn't around, and then this happened, and this happened. It just snowballs, and that's what Jesus is getting at. Where does it start? Where do these things initiate? And he's getting at the heart. And he gets so at the heart where he is confronting anything we do that would belittle or mock the image of God. Anything that we would do that would mock or belittle the image of God, spewing out hate. I mean, I had to check myself this morning, although I didn't check myself because actually Deanna checked me as I was driving here. Because someone cut me off and I got really mad. And I said things that I shouldn't say. And I'm like, nothing horrible, but... And then I tried to, like, make it better. Like, well, you know, it's just really unsafe to drive that way and you got to be safe. And, but really, I was like, you got in my way. But you do need to be safe when you drive. I mean, like, come on, you can't just... But the cool part is, is that Jesus actually gives us a fix for this. He tells us to pursue those, not who we're angry with, but who we know who are angry with us. It's a little bit different, right? Because often it's like, oh, and go and approach the person. If you're upset with them, just go talk to them, which is true. And Jesus gives that advice elsewhere in the scripture. But the point that he's getting at here is like, you know someone's upset with you? Then you go make it right with that person. You go talk to that person. And so one commentator says it like this, Scott McKnight, he says, the prohibition of anger here is not so much hyperbolic or exaggerative as it is a foretaste of kingdom realities. It's a foretaste of kingdom realities. It's what it's going to be like in the new heavens and new earth where, where there won't be this kind of anger. So, so what Jesus is doing is like, you got to get to the heart of that. And a question I want us to consider this morning is, who in our own body, who here, has something against you? 
Because I'm sure there's someone here who knows of someone else that has a problem with them. And I would just encourage you to move toward that person in grace, in mercy, with the intention of restoring that relationship. What Jesus is doing here is he's showing us what Moses always had meant by do not murder. He's showing us what Moses had always meant. But there's more here. I think it's so cool because he teaches how to operate within the midst of the body of Christ. But then he also shows us how we as followers of Jesus should be relating to those outside. He says it at the end here. He says, come to term quickly in verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. So he's talking about situations that not only happen here, but happen out there. And, and what he's saying is like, you got to make it right with that person for your own sake, right? Because you'll be put in jail and then you'll never get out forever. That seems to be what he's saying. But also in the sense of like at the heart of it, like you are representing the kingdom as you go about this earth. And so it's similar to in Acts chapter 2 when they had everything in common and, and they had favor with all the people. Like, it's not that they had favor with people in the church. They had favor with everybody at that particular moment. Now, there are things that are going to put us at odds with culture. That's just the reality. We are going to be put at odds with culture, but it should never be because we're just jerks, right? Like, that shouldn't be why we're put at odds with culture. It shouldn't be because we're in sin that we're put at odds with culture. The only thing that should put us at odds with the culture is our pursuits of righteousness, our pursuits of holiness, our pursuits of justice in this world. That's what puts us at odds with culture, not just being sinful human beings. It's really important that we catch that distinction. And so he moves on, because we're, again, we're moving through this stuff quickly because there are so many, there's six of these. He goes on to talk about lust in verse 27 and following. Again, Jesus is concerned with what? The posture of the heart, because the heart is the precursor to our actions. The heart's the precursor to our actions. So he goes like this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. It's good law. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. I love what Jesus does here. I love what Jesus does here. The word anyone who, right, that term, anyone who, that's a male pronoun. And what that means is, now, there's a general principle here, right? Men and women should not look at one another with lustful intent. Never. But he's doing something here. The male pronoun, meaning that the emphasis and the responsibility for lust is on the looker, not the one being looked at. It's really important that we wrap our minds around that. That the emphasis... And responsibility for lust is on the looker and not the one being looked at. You might even hear it like this. You've heard it said that we must dress modestly, but I tell you that the clothing of a woman or a man, the clothing that a woman or a man wears is never an invitation to objectify the woman. The, the, can I say that again? You've heard it said that we must dress modestly, but I tell you that the clothing a woman or man wears is never an invitation to objectify the image of God. No one's asking for it, basically, is what I'm getting at here. 
And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Remember, as he presents these, you've heard it said, but I tell you, he's not denying the law. He's not saying that you shouldn't commit, that you should commit adultery. He's saying there's something more going on here. And this is how we need to interpret the law. We need to understand that there's a trajectory to the law, that it's leading somewhere, that there is a heart issue at play. And that's what Jesus is getting at. That's what he's getting at. And then he goes into this pretty intense way of preventing ourselves from sin. He says, gouge out your eye, chop off your arm. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, however difficult or severe or troublesome or harsh any commandment of God may be, yet no excuse ought to be pleaded on those grounds because the righteousness of God ought to stand higher in our estimation than all that we reckon most precious and valuable. The righteousness of God ought to stand higher in our estimation than all that we reckon most precious and valuable, even, at his, even if that's your arm or your eye. But we all know that even if we gouged out our eye or chopped off our arm, that would not prevent us from sin. Because what is Jesus getting at? It's the heart. It's the heart. And he's showing us where the law was always intended to go. And in fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, into like Jeremiah, and I believe Ezekiel might touch on this, but I know Jeremiah does. He says that, that, that sin was written on the hearts of men. But what Jesus is doing through his death, burial, and resurrection, and his sending of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost is that he is writing the law upon the hearts of humanity, upon the hearts of those who follow him. And so something different is happening here. And again, I want us to keep that in mind. He's teaching us how we ought to approach the law of God, how we ought to approach these commands. We're not just to dress up the outside of the cup and appear as righteous. God is trying to get to the depths of who we are. And yes, while many of us in this room are followers of Jesus and are born again and have put our faith in Christ, there are things that still we are holding on to and that Jesus is probably bringing to your mind right now as you hear these words that he is wanting to clean up inside of you. Because again, it's the heart. And I know many of us have heard this message before. But we need to keep hearing it because there's still sin that dwells within us. We are saints of the Most High, right? We are righteous. The Bible tells us that. But yet, as, as a friend of mine once put, we still speak in the accent of the sinful nature, right? Those of you who, who maybe come from another country and, and you speak English with an accent, right? My grandmother spoke English with an accent. She spoke broken English, and, and, and it was difficult to understand her at times. But the reality was, she was an American citizen, but she spoke with an Italian accent. And the reality is, is we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we speak with a sinful accent. And the idea is that we need to continue pursuing Christ, continue surrounding ourselves with the people of God, studying the scriptures, being in community, so that accent diminishes over time as we continue running that race to the end. That's what God's calling us to. He goes on concerning divorce. It says, it is also said, it was said also, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, 
makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I kid you not, me and Eric sat for like hours this week trying to think through this text because it's a hard text. Like I spent an entire hour on Wednesday just like, just thinking about this because it's difficult. He's quoting Deuteronomy 24. He's summarizing really, which says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, give it to her, give it to her and sends her from his house. So there's something interesting happening in the text. See, what Jesus is getting at is, again, that external following of the law. We're not going to go into a full treatment on divorce and remarriage right now because we don't have the time. But what Jesus is getting at in this particular text, he's saying that what faithfulness looked like to the religious leaders of his day was simply writing a certificate of divorce. That's what godliness, holiness, and faithfulness looked like to them. And what Jesus is getting at, he's undermining a tradition and culture of permissiveness. Basically, get divorced for whatever you want to get divorced for. Some of the things that they write about in some of their religious literature, if, if a woman spoils a dish, it's grounds for divorce. If he finds someone else prettier than she, grounds for divorce. This was what they were calling faithfulness to the law. And Jesus says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because this whole section is about what it means to fulfill the law and the prophets. And what it means to fulfill the law and the prophets, it means to love God and to love neighbor and to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And divorcing your wife because she burnt your steak is not loving others as you would have them love you. Jesus is undermining a tradition and culture of permissiveness. um, Richard Hayes, a biblical scholar, says it like this. For marriage is not just an arrangement that will last only as long as the rush of mutual joy lasts. It's a covenant which will endure for better or for worse in sickness and in health. And I think the problem is that many of us approach texts like these in the scriptures looking for a reason, to a, a way out. Looking for a way out. Another scholar says it like that. If we come to this text looking for reasons to justify divorce, we miss the whole point. What this text does is to redefine marriage and to anchor it in the new community of Jesus, a community that will make possible both the single life and fidelity. The goal is reconciliation. The goal is love. The goal is pursuing Jesus together. That's the goal here. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Now, the exception clause is there. We can't get around it. And we need to understand the spirit in which Jesus was coming at it. First, self-sacrificial love is always the posture of God's people. Self-sacrificial love is always the posture of God's people. However, those who are in a relationship where the covenant is being trampled upon regularly, whether sexually or physically, they do need to protect themselves. And that is something, if you are in this room and you are experiencing that, you need to talk to somebody. I can't emphasize that enough. You need to talk to somebody if you're in this room and going through that. Because that is not God's intention for your marriage. 
You do need to please speak up about that. But marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, and we need to guard ourselves from allowing that covenant to be mocked and spit upon. We have to. There has to be something different about the people of God. And that's what he does. He's showing us, again, as he goes through this interpretation of the law, the law, this proper exegesis of the law, he's teaching us how we ought to understand the Christian life. How we ought to understand what Moses was always getting at. What Yahweh was getting at when he gave the law to Moses. He goes on. There's six of these. We're getting through them, though. We're almost there. Talks about oaths now, concerning oaths. Goes like this. Again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, or by, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white, nor can you make it grow back. I have some that have fallen off. I have a few more years in here. We'll see. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The point, again, is that the people of God are to be marked by integrity. To bear false witness against someone is to treat that person as less than human. Again, he keeps on getting at this. How do we treat one another? How do we engage with one another? Because it matters because we're dealing with fellow image bearers. We're dealing with people who bear the image of God. That Psalm 8 stuff that we talked about. Those who have been crowned with glory, especially in the context of the Christian community. Your brother and your sister in Christ are image bearers being restored. They wear that crown. We cannot treat them as subhuman. We cannot treat anyone as subhuman. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Scott McKnight, again, he says, Oaths assume a world in which honesty must be promised, implying that honesty is not always present. I think about that. If you have to promise something to someone and say, No, I swear, I swear, I swear, I swear, then that assumes that there's lies present. That assumes that there's lies present. And what Jesus is getting at, he says, No, just say yes. Your word should be enough. Your word should be enough. Again, the spirit of the law here is that we are to love God and love neighbor by being a people marked by integrity. Because the kingdom of heaven, the reign and rule of God is a kingdom that must look different from the world. And trustworthiness is one of the ways we love one another. It's one of the ways we love one another. He goes on. Maybe I'm going to stop saying he goes on because he keeps going on. And if I keep saying it, it sounds redundant. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. These are hard. These are hard. These are hard for me as I, as I raise children and thinking about, like, well, what if someone hits my kid? What do I tell them? I ask that question all the time, right? I, I feel like many of you have asked that question. Do I teach my kid to punch him back? I don't know. This is the hard part. I was raised to, you hit, someone punch you, hit him back. 
There's more to that story, but that's how I was raised. But what Jesus is getting at, that when heaven comes into a fallen world, when heaven enters into this world, it comes by way of humility. It comes by way of sacrifice. And ultimately, it comes by way of death. It's so interesting as we look through this text because the word, if someone strikes you on the cheek, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's used of Jesus when he's standing before the religious leaders, right before the crucifixion, and they are beating him. It said they struck him when they had his face covered and they said, prophesy who it was that hit you. Go ahead, tell us, prophet, who hit you? That's the only other time it's used. And what Jesus is doing, honestly, this whole entire text is somewhat autobiographical because Jesus fulfills all this stuff. He fulfills all this stuff. And he was the one that was struck for us. He was the one who said that I will love my enemies. And he's the one who looked at us who were at enmity with God and lavished grace upon us. We are the ones who are hitting Jesus and he's not hitting us back. And he's saying, come into my kingdom. Come, I will make you clean. And then we have the audacity to go and do the opposite as we conduct ourselves in this world. And Jesus is saying, that has no place with my people. That has no place with my people. Again, we see here a posture of love towards one en one's enemies in practice. We're to follow in the footsteps of our saviors, allowing ourselves to be defrauded on account of Christ. In other words, we don't take justice into our own hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Now we need to caveat this a smidgen, right? Because we're dealing with wisdom literature here. And there are times where we do need to step into a situation. If a child is being abused, we need to step into that situation. If we witness a horrific event taking place, we need to step into that situation. We need to exercise wisdom. But ultimately what is being driven at here is that vengeance belongs to God and to love one's enemy is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus because that's precisely what he did for us. That's precisely what he did for us. And that's hard because many in this room have probably been defrauded and God is saying, you need to take a step back. You need to trust that God is on the throne and then he's going to make it right. And if he doesn't make it right in this life, he will make it right in the life to come. And that's just the reality. If we look at the Beatitudes, there's nothing blessed about being poor in spirit. There's nothing blessed about mourning. There's nothing blessed about being hungry. And in Luke's gospel, it's so interesting because it doesn't talk about the spiritual side of things. It just says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the weak. There's nothing blessed about that, but he grounds those blessings in what? The eschatological, the life to come. Because the reality is, is that we might not experience justice on this side of heaven. We might not. In fact, the reality is, is that we probably won't. And as we look around the world, we can just say amen to that over and over again because we are surrounded by injustice. We're surrounded by it on all sides. And God is saying, stay the course, because I am coming back. Oh, I promise you I'm coming back. 
He goes on. I'll get it again. In verse 43 and following, it says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's such an interesting verse. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. To love those most difficult is to manifest the kingdom of heaven. This is precisely what Jesus did, and he calls us to do likewise. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Christ died for us. While we were at enmity with God, Christ died for us. The grace of God enters into enemy territory to make for himself a people holy and pleasing to him. He's not messing around. He loves us so much that he died on a cross. We know this story. This is not new news, but it's the best news. While we were enemies with let that sink in for a second. While you are at odds with God, he's calling us to go and do likewise. And a simple scroll through Twitter or Facebook will show you how many of us are not engaging the world as such. Whether it's political affiliation, whatever the case may be, and it seems to really rear its head there, but man, the people who disagree with us, not only do we disagree, but we disagree with like visceral. And God's saying that's not what it means to follow me. Doesn't mean we're not allowed to disagree, but it means how we posture ourselves in this world is either reflecting who God is or a false picture of who Jesus is. Because as image bearers, as followers of Jesus, as the church in this world, we either represent him correctly or we represent this false God. But we're always representing him. And the reality is, is that the world does look at the church. And that's how they understand God. How are we showing the world God? To love God and neighbor is to love like God. We manifest the kingdom of heaven when we walk in the footsteps of our Savior who went before us. And this is how we become sons of our Father in heaven. The reality is, Jesus is teaching us how to interpret the law. He's showing you that there is a law. It's good. But the way it's being interpreted is bad. It's wrong. And it's actually evil. Let me show you how to properly interpret it. Theologians have called this section antithesis, as though we're looking at the opposites of the law. But that's not what's happening. Jesus is not teaching the opposite of the law. He's not abolishing the law. He's showing where the law was always intended to go. 
need to take that pattern and use it and apply it to the world around us. You've heard it said that life begins at conception and we must protect the rights of the unborn. But I tell you that life continues also after birth and that we as the church are required to love and care for those babies and mothers beyond infancy and into adulthood so that they might flourish and shed light on this broken world. You've heard it said that premarital sex is a sin, and it is, but I tell you that the young girl who conceives as a result of premarital sex should be comforted, encouraged, and cared for by the people of God. You've heard it said that drug and alcohol abuse are destructive, but I tell you that we must lavish grace and mercy and love upon those who struggle with addiction. You've heard it said that those who struggle with same-sex attraction are in sin, but I tell you that we must surround them with love, not judgment, grace, not condemnation, mercy, not punishment. You've heard it said that we must submit to the governing authorities and render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but I tell you that we must use wisdom when engaging in politics, not following blindly and should not always assume that God is on our side regardless of what we do just because we wave an American flag. In other words, we mustn't weaponize the word of God, nor our personal and ecclesial convictions, but rather we must be people of compassion who remove the barriers that keep the blessed ones from entering the kingdom of heaven. For it is the blessed ones who are declared to be on the outside by both religion and culture, but they're the ones whom Jesus pursued with eagerness and zeal. They're they are the ones whom we need to be listening to and learning from because their experiences reflect a brokenness in this world in ways that we, many of us, might not have ever experienced. Jesus is calling us to something much bigger than religious. I can't even think of another word. But you know what I'm getting at. He's getting at the heart. And all those things I just read, yes, absolutely, there's sin on the left. But you know what? How we respond to sin should be the same way God responds to sin. With grace, with mercy, with compassion, with love. Jesus is calling us to be different. And in calling us to be different, he's showing us what it is to be truly human. In Psalm 8, we read about that man who was crowned with glory and honor. The book of Hebrews picks that verse up and applies it directly to Jesus. He is the one who was created a little lower than the heavenly beings, who was crowned with glory and honor, who has dominion over all of creation. And we, when we put our faith in him, are brought into union with him so that we too wear that crown with him. And we too have to live like him in this world. We are not second coming Jesus. That's not who we are. We don't come with sword, demolishing our enemies. We are first coming Philippians 2 Jesus. We have glory awaiting us. But we are Philippians 2 Jesus entering into this world with humility, mercy, compassion and ultimately death because death is the means to glory that's the story of the bible death is the means to glory suffering is the means to glory that's what jesus did on the cross that was his coronation day 
when he sat up there, arms spread, and they crowned him with thorns. That was how he became king, by fulfilling the law to its perfection, to its completeness. And that's how he became king. And we, too, become kings and queens in this world by serving, by suffering, by dying. That's what the scripture calls us to. He closes this section in verse 48. He says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must, therefore, be perfect. The word, therefore, shows us that this entire section is capped off by this verse. This is the main point of the verse. If you're looking at just grammar, this is the main point of this entire section. Kingdom-oriented wisdom says that we love deeply, radically, and counterintuitively. In other words, we are to love and serve others to our own hurt. This is what it means to be a truly human child of God. And when Jesus talks about perfection here, what happens is, is that we take our modern understanding of the word perfect and we import it. But Jesus is not talking about moral perfection here. That's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is this idea of being holy whole of being complete the goal that we are intending to get to that's what he's getting at here and it's important that we make that distinction because sometimes we'll look at this verse and we'll say well i can't be perfect but jesus is so i'm good but that's actually not what jesus is getting at he's saying that there's a way to become a flourishing fully human being in this world and it's by following my law. It's by loving others. And, and it's so interesting, right? Because what Jesus does with the 600 and some odd commandments of the law, he boils it down to love God, love neighbor, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the question is, how do we do that? We do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, those of us who have bent our knee to the King, have been filled with the Spirit of God so that we are able to walk this path that he lays out for us. We are able to exercise wisdom in interpreting the law and engaging with one another, engaging politics, engaging sin, engaging culture. We have that ability because we've been given the Spirit of God and we've been crowned with glory just like Jesus has because we've been brought into union with him. And when we're brought into union with him, we are justified with him, sanctified with him. We are adopted as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ and we are glorified with him. And that is what we need to be living in light of. That's the truth of the gospel. That's what Jesus is getting at. In all six statements, God the Father is known to be the perfect one. God does not murder, but is forgiving. God is faithful to his marriage covenant. God is honest and keeps his covenant oath. God forgives and gives even to those who dishonor him. And God loves even his enemies. Jesus' interpretation of the law and the prophets provides us with a model for how we ought to approach our faith. The spirit of the law to love God and to love neighbor is essential to our sanctification. And it is what draws us nearer to Christ. I'm not saying that we get in by good works. Please don't hear that. But we are drawn nearer to God through how we live our life in this world. 
we become more and more like God as we seek him in his word, as we engage with one another, as we love one another. At Redeemer, we believe that we are here to share in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. That is what we are about here. That is what we care most deeply about. And it is our job to now figure out how to go about and do that. What we have before us in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in this section, as one Christian poet puts it, we have an invitation to be beautiful. Beautiful in the sense of the image of God. We have an invitation to be holy and pleasing to God. And as we come to the table this morning, we come to a table set and adorned with the love of Christ. And as we look to Christ, my prayer is that we too would fulfill the law, that we might share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. And the beautiful part about it is that he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we might go forth and do such that. Redeemer, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus because that is what you have been made to do. That is what we have been made to do as a community. And we do it individually and we do it together. We do it through Operation Christmas Child. We do it through the recovery group. We do it through the youth group. We do it in our community groups as we love and serve one another. We do it as we provide meals for those in need. We need to show the world a different story, a better story. The story of the resurrected king lived out through the life of his people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the truth of your word. And I ask, Father, that as these words, as we hear them, Lord, as we think through them, Father, as we consider them in community groups, Father, that they would penetrate to the heart, Father, because that is what you are getting at, Lord. That is what you care deeply about, that we would be transformed from the inside out so that we might live lives holy and pleasing to you. So Redeemer Fellowship, as the ushers come forward to distribute communion, an ancient meal practiced for over 2,000 years commemorating the death of Jesus, please consider what we've heard this morning. There's a calling that's been placed on each of our lives by Jesus. The Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church at Corinth says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. At Redeemer Fellowship, the way we do communion is we come up these aisles and we take a cracker and we take a cup of juice. We also, um, newly this week, we have gluten-free option right here as well um, for the bread. So if you come forward and grab, I don't think we have juice here, so you'll grab a piece of bread and you can go that way and grab some juice. If you're here and you do not consider yourself a Christian, we ask that you remain in your seat and consider what you've heard this morning.
This is a meal intended for the followers of Jesus as, you, um, as we have examined ourselves before God. So as you come up, also our pastors will be available to pray for you with whatever you might be struggling with. So come when you are ready.